Before we get going and promoting this week's episode, telling you everything that's going to come up, including uh, the hockey shop, thehockeyshop.com, source for Sports Surrey, as we head into Black Friday, want to thank everybody for reaching out to Dad and grabbing on to the Dad moniker with David Hutchison, one of the co-founders of Ingoal Magazine. It warms my heart that everybody believes that Dad is truly the backbone to this operation and he is so uh thank you for making him feel great and us as well for grabbing on to a part of the family dynamic that is in goal radio the podcast uh, i'm darren millard your host along with the co-founders david hutchison and kevin woodley dad how are you this week i uh, humbled by that intro darren thank you i'm fantastic Every time you get an email, you forward it on and say, look what you guys have done. It's fun. And, it's and fun. It's I'm enjoying it. And I don't know about backbone. I think maybe just like a doting old father is the backbone of the family. But really, since then, the kids have far surpassed in intelligence and ability. So I just get to be carried around for all the old time memories or something. But I'm loving it. Get to drive us around to all the events. That's that's what kind of what you do. Well, you, you drive me crazy, us. but I don't drive you anywhere. But that's OK. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. How are you, Woody? I'm good. I'm, I'm even better that everyone's calling Hutch Dad because I feel uh, young in relation, despite the fact I'm not that much younger. So it's good. This is uh, this is provides me youthful exuberance to hear him being referenced as dad. Your hips are way older than mine. Oh, yeah. Like oh, body of a 40. Yes. I think I'm. Oh, yeah. Math 46, but definitely the hips of a 90 year old. Oh, yeah. I was going to say me. You're approaching triple digits with those things. Uh, Adam Micheletti is the vice president of hockey at visualedge.com. And that's a teaching aid. Uh, we'll get you into uh, just exactly what that means. It's web-based. And dad did that interview. Uh, dad, uh, unlike most of our, our families, dad is actually our IT expert. So that's, this is perfect when you're talking about web-based stuff. And it's a really cool conversation with Adam Micheletti. And Steve Valiquette is a former goaltender in the National Hockey League, now an analyst, and also the founder of ClearSight Analytics. He's the president and CEO. Uh, just a fascinating conversation that uh, Kevin Woodley uh, conducted with Stephen Valaket that covers, I think, as many subjects and as many corners of uh, goaltending and training and as far as analytics is concerned, uh, also touches on on that area really in depth. So looking forward to those two interviews, but also sneaking up on Black Friday with the Hockey Shop, thehockeyshop.com and Source for Sports Surrey. And I can't wait to see what they have planned. Yeah, the uh, that's that segment with Micheletti is actually going to be our gear segment this week because it is technically like a training tool. You can, as, as Hutch will tell you, you can download it on the iPad and use it that way. And I think if people are wondering how we discovered Visual Edge. I think we should remind people that was thanks to Carter Hart, who talked about using it on a weekly basis as a training tool, and we had him on the podcast. So that is a long-winded way of me saying we're giving Cam the week off from the gear segment, so we won't be going to the hockey shop in person, despite the fact that I will actually go there myself just because I need my I need a fresh uh, edge on my wheel. So I got to go see Cecil because that's where you go when you want things done properly. You go to the hockey shop, hockey shop source for sports in Surrey. We're not going to go there for the gear segment because everyone is busy marking things down for Black Friday. There are the prices are so good on some items. Um, we're talking like pro and senior level pads at close to 50% off. I can't give you specifics because it's actually so good that I've been told I have to wait until next week's podcast to deliver the specifics because they don't want other companies 
copycatting just how low they're going with some of these prices. So uh, I tell you every week, if you got to buy gear and you live in the lower mainland, you're lucky enough to live in this beautiful part of the world, go check them up at the Hockey Shop Source for Sports out in Surrey. If you're online, it's thehockeyshop.com. For sure, check them out this week, but make sure you've got that page bookmarked and ready to go for Friday morning, Black Friday, because uh, the sales promise to be spectacular. Um, mostly, you know, and and you know, full disclosure, probably not going to be the new Brian's Optic 2 we talked about. But last year's models, past year's models, there's going to be an opportunity to get some real high-end gear at some really great discount prices started, starting on Black Friday at thehockeyshop.com. And if you're lucky enough to live here in person, uh, at the Hockey Shop Source for Sports in Surrey. I cannot wait. It, it, it's going to be great dealing with the American side of things, with the, with the money, and working the exchange now. Oh. I'm going to be all over that thing. So, yeah, for you, it's like basically like some of these things are going to be 50% off, add the 30%, like 80% off. Oh, no. I'm telling you, I, I fully anticipate Cam owing me money <laughs> after I get a product. Uh, hey, listen, that, that's actually, that's very possible. <laughs> to be honest with you, the way we blow up his uh, reputation, he should probably be paying us anyways. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you want to tell uh, Senior Woody about the uh, before, because Adam McLeddy from uh, visualedge.com is uh, coming up. We're going to go to Stephen Valaket first, but can you tell Woody that it's, you don't have to download anything with that thing? Because you started shaking your head and you were, you were, you had the, the old man disgusting look like i'm oh, so disappointed in no you, it was actually what i was a little uncomfortable about because it's something that adam and i talked about offline is you actually can't do it offline quite now they're they're working on an app and it's one of the features that it will have but but unfortunately you need to be web connected to use the software so i was sort of a little bit like fingernails on a chalkboard when he said you could download it to the ipad i specifically Woody, brought this- it up this I specifically is why we brought have it up. Dad here to yeah, fix it. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, I specifically brought it up because as a result of the Carter Hart, the John Stevenson, the Pete Fry conversations we've had here, um, my son has been doing a lot of concentration grids and he had the iPad out on the bus to Kelowna this weekend. And suddenly half the team and half the coaches were racing each other in concentration grids. Uh, and I thought, geez, Visual Edge really needs to, to get this ready for the iPad so that you can do the same thing on the bus. Um, but we'll talk more about that when we get into that segment. Oh, hold on. Um, I, w- just... I want to know what the record was on the con. Give me a 10 by 10 best number. No, they weren't doing 10 by 10 because they're teenagers and they don't have that kind of attention span. They were, they were ripping <laughs> off five by fives and six by sixes. Um, no. And, and they wanted to pass this thing around and you know, kids, how fast can we get? I think they, I think one of them on a five by five got down to just under 12 seconds, which was a little otherworldly as well. Yeah. Wow. What, what happened to card games on the bus? Well, exactly. Yeah, there's a few there. You, you see some some cards there, but uh, it's a different day, isn't it? Uh, I'm going to get to you because you, you guys have both. Uh, well, I know Hutch, you've tried it out. I I tried it out, and uh, I want to get your impression. And because I was, I'm not going to lie, I was pretty good at it. Uh, the the parts that uh, that I downloaded. So I'm I'm really expecting big things at my Friday skate this week. But uh, up first, our feature interview brought to you by the Source for Sports. Source for Sports. Uh, uh, in Surrey, the hockey shop, thehockeyshop.com. Uh, Stephen Valaket, uh, how would you describe Stephen present day, Woody, uh, before I set up this interview? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, yeah, he covers so much ground. He does everything. Just well, I, his... I think he described it himself goalie geek. Like he is a goalie geek. Mm-hmm. The difference is he's actually taken his passion for the position beyond the stuff that we talk about. And 
dug into numbers that he always sort of knew and throughout his career mattered, made them sort of concrete measurables and created a company, an analytics company that, you know, has has teams contracting them in the NHL, um, supports sort of all the work he does as an analyst from a number standpoint, gives him data to back up his points. And it's all sort of started with the intuition based on goaltending, right? So and we we talk a little bit about it in the interview, and it is one of it's it's quickly up there as one of my all time favorite interviews because the career was fascinating. His insights from the different steps he took in the career were fascinating. But then to get into this analytics stuff was just like we talked about making it a two parter, right? Because there was just so much there, yeah. and um, really we are seeing teams, and I'm not actually allowed to mention specifically all. There are certain ones that can't be mentioned that work with them because of confidentiality, but we've definitely seen teams. I'm not sure if they're contracted, but I know there are teams that have pointed to his work when it comes to Royal Road and slot line and some of that data to change the way they attack and have, for example, won a Stanley Cup directly as a result of changing the way attack based on the goalie coach uh, having a role and having a say and numbers to back up. Hey, if if a goalie struggles to to stop these types of shots and the math says he does, the analytics says he does, then we should be trying to create more of them. So um, really going starting from the goalie side and basically creating something that can be used from all sides of the game by, you know, all kinds of teams. It's 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 a fascinating discussion. And it, I guess, as you can tell, as I ramble, it's kind of hard to sum up what Steve is now because he's kind of, you know, in a lot of ways, everything to everyone with this company, ClearSide Analytics. You have like four NDAs going right now between the hockey shop and <laughs> now the... If we get the, a couple uh, more, maybe we'll be able to get a word in edgewise on this podcast. <laughs> well done. Appreciate that. Drop the mic and walk off. Uh, yes, uh, Stephen Valakat is is fascinating. So as you listen to this interview, it uh, it will start off with the the idea of playing goal and where that came with him, which is different than a lot of our guests, goes into a misstep in junior, which I didn't know about, but could have just derailed his entire career, and then goes into the National Hockey League and finishes with the analytics side. The analytics portion, uh, just a heads up, you're going to have to talk about those concentration grids. It, it takes some focus because uh, it's, it's in-depth and it's cool. It's fascinating. I'm not saying that as uh, as any type of shot. It's just Fascinating, but you have to pay attention to it. So Stephen Valakat, our feature interview, goaltender and CEO and president of ClearSight Analytics, our feature interview on In Goal Radio, the podcast presented by Source for Sports Surrey and The Hockey Shop, thehockeyshop.com. Steve, I'm not even sure where to start here, to be honest with you. Like, I want to get into your playing career. I want to get into what, what drove you to become a goaltender. But then I'm also fascinated with everything you're doing now, both working uh, as an analyst covering Rangers games and also obviously ClearSight Analytics. Um, I think uh, something that comes from the goalie's eye, but probably applies to offense and shooters as well. So why don't we, why don't we start? I like to do this with a lot of my guests. Why don't we start with uh, where it all began, like stopping pucks. Where did the passion start? Makes sense. You know, Woods, I, I'll tell you what, I was... I was not somebody that wanted to be a goalie. I think the position chose me. I was, I was a kid that moved from 
Brampton, Ontario, which was a pretty big suburb of Toronto. We moved up north to Bolton, Ontario, which was a small town, about 11,000 people, when I was in fourth grade. And I tried out for the rep hockey team there as a forward, as a left winger, just as my father's cousin, Jack Valiquette, that played for the Toronto Maple Leafs as a left winger, uh, had played. And that's what Valiquettes were supposed to do. They are supposed to play wing. And I got cut. And everybody at my school had a Bolton Bruins uh, jacket, uh, corduroy, all the cool kids, of course. <laughs> and I wanted one. You know, I really wanted to fit in with the new kids in school. Um, I was playing house league for Jet Power Credit Union. That end of season, I had to go in net when my parents were on vacation. Uh, I had to get a permission form signed from my aunt. And it was something that my parents didn't want. They didn't want to allow me to play goal. I snuck in that. I, I got the permission uh, thing signed. And, and what really happened next was the following year, I tried out for that same Bolton team and as a goalie, and I was cut. And it was really tough. I was going into fifth grade. And then I went back the next day because they asked me to try out as a winger again. Would you come back as a winger? And I went back and I got cut as a winger. So I got cut from a, the same tryout as a goalie and a winger in the same tryout. And pretty devastated, but went back to work. And it was pretty much like that my whole career. I, I made it on my third try. I didn't make AAA hockey for the Richmond Hill Vaughn Kings until uh, I was 14 years old. And that was on my third try. And when I look at the length of time that it took me to transition at every level, um, for better or for worse, it, it helped me have that perseverance. And it was eight years in the minors before I really became a full-time NHLer. I was going to say from from cut at that age to having an NHL career at all like at what point in the transition and in that perseverance did you you know did you start to get into the position to the point where you thought it was something you would be doing as a career like how how long did that process and what what was the process well basically because I had such a late start I started playing full-time I want to say at 12 where I took my first goalie lesson and I wanted to be a goalie and Making that team in Richmond Hill at age 14 was important because I was playing with the top kids for the very first time, and I really got to measure myself and see where I was. And I was the backup goalie, and I deserved to be. Uh, but that summer, I told my father I no longer wanted to be his, his apprentice at his electrical company, and I told him I was willing to sacrifice my whole summer to get better at hockey uh, he signed me up for eight weeks of the Jim Park Goalie School in Toronto. It was five hours on the ice every day, five days a week. My dad would wake me up at five o'clock in the morning. I'd sleep at his office near the rink on a cot for a couple, I don't know, about an hour and a half before I had to get up for the eight, eight o'clock or 8.30 skate. And it was after those eight weeks of five hours a day as a 14-year-old, I went into the next season and I was good. I was all of a sudden, I was good. That's funny how that works, right? A little bit of work, although in your case, a lot of work. That's a that's a ton. That's a massive commitment. We know where the game is now in terms of modern goalie coaching and and all the technical aspects. We also know where the game is now in terms of a lot of teams wanting goaltenders who were six foot six, like yourself. But I'm guessing that wasn't necessarily the case back then. Is it? Is it possible that your size was something that you had to overcome at that age in that era a little bit? Definitely my size. Um, everyone said that I had a seven hole instead of a five hole. I was the first big goalie. The only guy I could really look to was Sean Burke, as far as an example in the NHL. Um, something set me back to once where 
I was 15, just about turning 16 when I went to play Burlington Cougars tier two junior A. And it was a really tough year. Um, the stress, trying to get drafted to the OHL, trying to find my way as somebody living away from home for the very first time. And um, that next year, I got drafted off the strength of that year where I got to play in the All-Star game as a 16-year-old. And I got drafted in the third round of the Sudbury Wolves. So now I had an opportunity to really play. And in the first weekend that I was there, I had a house party. I had a party and I had everybody over from the team and it spilled over until the next day. And I got in a lot of trouble for it. I had uh, my coach, actually, Glenn Murkowski, woke me up the following night and was in my bedroom tapping on my shoulder to wake me up. And I rolled over and I thought I was dreaming. And he said, get your clothes on right now. Get dressed and meet me in the den. And he started reprimanding me. Now, when I look back on it, that team, that Sudbury Wolves team was the top team in junior hockey that year. Had I played, which I was supposed to as a third round pick, I was supposed to be the backup. Had I played there as a big goalie, I would have had good numbers and I probably would have got drafted high that year. But I didn't because I had a house party. And the reason why, and I, and I wonder about this, Woods, now if the coach, Glenn Murkowski, had to ask me why I had the party, I had the party because I was trying to fit in. Because the year before, I was hazed and asked to do things that people get thrown in jail for now. And if it wasn't for that experience, again, a bit of perseverance and you know, I had to own it. I had to call my agent, Mike Gillis at the time, who you'd know from Vancouver and, yep. and explain to him that I had a house party and that I'm going to get suspended from the team. But you know what? It was obviously out of character for me, but I had such a bad year the year before with my teammates, as far as just being a young guy and everybody was 20 and they just abused me all year that I just wanted to go through a better off ice season. And I just took the wrong direction there. And I think that that really, it stuck with me because I ended up being an eighth round pick a year later after going back to tier two and the coach, uh, Glenn Rakoski, he didn't play me for a year and a half in the OHL until Todd, the lawn took over. And then I had an opportunity to finally play some games and make a name for myself. But it was, uh, it was a tough run there. And, you know, you're trying to find your way as a young guy off the ice, you make one mistake and oh, it, it followed me for a long time. That's uh, interesting. I think I'd like to think, and maybe I'm a little naive, that we've come a long way in terms of what's acceptable from that hazing standpoint back then compared to now. But it kind of just goes to show you, and I've you know, I've heard a few other examples, not hazing related, but um, you know some some high end prospects um, that are under the spotlight in their draft year, or even after their draft year, after they've been picked, and you know they'll stub their toe in a playoff game or in a playoff where there's a big spotlight on them and you think oh wow like i wonder you know i wonder what's going on here is this kid going to make it is he and then you find out later behind the scenes there's something going on personally that the rest of the world doesn't know about that affected that performance and we just it just goes to show you that quite often we just don't know the real story especially especially from far away right that's uh, that's tough no, that's what I really realized as an analyst. Um, there's times where you've got to back it up and realize that when you were a player, the only day you were ever 100% was the first day of training camp. After that, you're always dealing with something. And you've got to realize that when you're you know, I'm working for the Rangers on MSG, as much as I know about the Rangers, I mean, there was, even going back to last week, they had a really difficult game in Tampa Bay. But it comes out afterwards, there's six or seven guys that had the flu. You know, you just don't know, right? You just don't know. Yeah. So, so Sudbury uh, and then Erie late 97, 98 with the OHL. 
Um, and then in into you're drafted by the Kings in '96. Uh, what was that experience like? Is that I mean, again, everything sort of changed. I look at covering the NHL draft here in Vancouver, and um, you know we're a couple we're a couple decades removed from it. So, what was that experience like getting drafted in '96? Did you go? So I went to the first training camp, the very first year I was drafted, and oh my God, after about three days, I knew exactly what I needed to work on, and I couldn't wait to get back to Sudbury. I, it was it was over my level. It was, I remember coming off the post and getting out to the slot area and just timing my drop to the ice the way I would do in the OHL, and it would hit me in the left shoulder, and this one goes clean over my shoulder bar in. And I remember saying to myself, oh my God, what worked down there at the OHL level is not going to work at the NHL level. I could feel it side to side when the puck was moving from one dot to the other. I was late and I was stumbling across, but I could tell you one thing. I took my notes, I took my licks, and I knew right there that I was going to make a decision to devote my life to this game and that I was going to play in the NHL, but I wasn't ready yet. But thank you very much, LA Kings. I know what I have to work on. I'm going to go back and work on it. That's, yeah. that's what I took from that experience and I went back to Sudbury and worked my butt off. Now, did you have help? Like, I mean, again, because eras changed. Was there help for you in Sudbury to isolate things I need to get better at as a goaltender? Or are you just practicing with you know, the rest of the team? Or did you have that goalie-specific assistance? No. So back in that time, none of our assistant coaches were former goalies. So if you didn't have a guy on your staff that was a goalie at that time, 92, 93, 94, all of those, well, my draft was 96. So the next year I went back, um, I believe I played 61 out of 66 games in the OHL and I got scored on a lot because like I said, our team was supposed to be really good my rookie year, but then we rebuild it for the next three years. So in that rebuild, I was getting peppered. I remember working so hard just to get my save percentage to 90 and I finished the year at 899 but we, I'd average 42 shots a game and I was always looking ahead and that's why I know why I like stats information analytics now because it can really help you look to all right well that guy had a save percentage right there he's two years older than me and he's playing in the American Hockey League so if I can get that save percentage at the same level of play at the same time maybe I have a chance what I did that year was at the end of the year, after giving up a lot of goals, but making a lot of saves, I knew where I was again. And I brought it back to Jim Park Goalie School. I brought my list of all of my goals against from that year. I went back at the end of the season and did a game by game. And I remembered every single goal I gave up in every game. And I gave up a lot in 61 games. And uh, I remember the number being 34% of the goals that I gave up were passes from below the goal line to the slot. and. I remember how I felt and what I needed to work on. So I, I was not comfortable just going to a hockey school in the summertime and saying, uh, whatever you guys want, I'll work on. I went there with a plan. I had a list of how I gave up goals. And I said, I got to work on this. And I, it worked out that I just wasn't getting any depth off my post. And I was playing deep. And because of my skating ability off of my post, I wasn't able to get that, that uh, top of crease depth. And we worked on it. And I, tr- I learned how to track a pass that summer from below the goal line. That's fascinating. So you, and of course, would you have had video or are you purely going off memory as you're going back? I I remember just getting into my, uh, into my bedroom and pad and pen and just going over every single game from my schedule that year and remembering every goal. Wow. That's, I mean, there's a couple of guys, Dubnik's one that I've been told you can tell him, you can give him a date, a game, 
and and a goal, tell him who scored it, and he will walk you. Ex- he'll be able to go back in the memory bank and walk you through exactly what he did and exactly how that goal went in. That's, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's I know I have that because I could still do it. Wow. Yeah, but that's why maybe that's part of the burn on the goals too. They hurt so much. They they bleed and cut deeper than maybe the great saves that we made. I well, I, I don't. I, I I that's all I've got is goals against. So I don't have any great saves to look at. So that maybe that's why this position hurts so much as an amateur. Um, ninety eight, ninety nine. You started your pro career. Well, you did have a. You played a little East Coast that league after after that year in Sudbury. Three games at the end of the season. But when you turn pro. After making all these adjustments and all these changes, you start in, start in the coast with Hampton, um, some time in the AHL as well, 98, 99. What was, the, what was the big jump to pro? What was that process like? What are your memories of that evolution? Um, six games with the Islanders in 99, 2000. What, again, what, what kind of help was available from a goalie coaching standpoint? Or were you still kind of on your own in the minors back then? Oh, on our own. You know, and I was actually... Those first few years, I was with Rick DiPietro, uh, first with Luongo, first with Roberto, and then, and then after that with DiPietro, uh, during my five years as an Islander, most of that time was spent in the minor leagues. We didn't have our own farm team. So two years during that time, I played on four teams. I was in the East Coast League in Trenton. I was off to Providence. I was up with the big club. I was in Lowell. And I was moving around. It was it was really tough. And I wonder if I have I don't have any regrets about my career because I got to play in the NHL and I probably shouldn't have. I found a way. But if I have any things that I wonder about, it's if I would have had help like I had as a twenty seven year old with Benoit Allaire working with us in Hartford when I was a really young guy developing because there was zero help. And and zero help for Rick DiPietro as well, that you wonder how great he could have been. But we did not Woody, we did not have a goalie coach. We had no help. There was no help. And I wonder, and I've, and I've talked to him about that because we used to work together at MSG and we cross paths and talk still. And that's the one thing you're kind of left as a question mark um, during that time. I was everywhere and anywhere with a hockey bag. And I can remember just going to practice one day in Lowell and the coach, Frank Anzalone, skating up to me along the boards and saying, so Steve, you've probably heard uh, you're going to the East Coast League. And um, no, I haven't heard, you know, not sure what you're talking about. And he said, well, this is before, this is before cell phones and MapQuest. He said, well, you got to get yourself to Hampton Roads, Virginia. Uh, tomorrow morning, you've got practice at 10 o'clock and you've got a real treat of a coach. You've got John Brophy. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I knew who John Brophy was because he once coached the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I got a map out at a gas station and found my way to Hampton Roads. And there was a Hampton Roads Coliseum. I found a rink. I got there. I had the number for a trainer. I called the trainer. He said, he asked me where I was. I said, I was at the Hampton Roads Coliseum. He said, no, no, we don't play there. We play an hour over the bridge and deeper into Virginia at the Norfolk scope. And I had no idea. I mean, now I'm late for practice. My first day with John Brophy and he's yelling at me and, Anytime I gave up two or more goals in a practice in a row that he was aware of, goaler, get in the corner. And I just stand in the corner while everyone else is shooting on an empty net. And there was times in our practice where Jason Sal and I would both be in the corner watching guys go through on shooting drills and nobody's in the net. And the boys chirping us, hey, could you guys mix in a save so we could have a goalie to shoot on? You know, and 
It was wild back then. And that's first year pro. That's first year pro. I mean, I'm really green at that point and trying to figure it out and uh, no help. I'm telling you, it was just thrown out there to the wolves and whoever survives, survives. But then going back to my experience when I was a youngster, being cut multiple times, I had some pretty thick skin. So I was able to get through it. We'll get to Ben Waller and... and the transformation under him and, and getting some instruction when he get to New York with the Rangers. But I mean, through that stint, in 99-2000, you played six games with the Islanders, um, had a 949 save percentage, and yet, like you said, bounced around and in and out of all those different places, including Springfield and Bridgeport, uh, Lowell, all the ones you mentioned as well. Bouncing around the minor leagues, yet when you were in the NHL for those six games, 949, is it that much tougher? Like, hey, I had some experience up here and I felt good about it. Well, you're familiar with Sidarisha Mirage, right, Sudzi? Yep. So that summer, okay, that summer, Mike Gillis, again, Mike, he calls me up in the summertime. He says, there's a guy you got to go work with in Toronto. This guy's legit and he's helping everybody in the area and you've got to get on the ice with him. And this is about, I don't know, a month before uh, training camp. And, um, I get on the ice and there's an Indian guy there with an earring. Right. And I'm like, okay, who's pulling my leg. Right. Like a goalie coach that, you know, doesn't really look like a goalie coach, but I'm, I've always been open-minded and, you know, I meet him. He said, hi, I'm Sudsy. I'm like, really nice guy. He gets me in the net and he says, look, we're going to go through a few skating drills before it, uh, starts our practice begins. And I get down on the butterfly and he says, okay, just push back to that post right there. And he points to the far side post. And I get a rotation, I get up with my proper leg and I try and slide across. I get about halfway through the crease and I look, look at him and he says, yeah, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> so <laughs> right there, right there, he, he had me and I love Sudsy. If it wasn't for Sudsy, I never would have got a sniff at that 949. That, that 949 was Sudsy. So I worked with him, which was now going into the very next year. So that whole first year pro, all I could think about was getting through the year and then knowing at the end of the year, I was going to work with Sudsy three times a week through May, June, July, August, which I did. And I worked with Sudsy three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, one hour on ice. He spent so he was so selfless with his time. He'd spend an hour with me after that upstairs talking, you know, theory and goaltending. And I love the game and I'm a goalie nerd. And we all just geeked out and just talked hockey. And by the end of that summer, I felt like I could move mountains out there. Like talk about earning it. I, I felt like I deserved it. And that was now my competitive advantage. I went in that training camp and I was the best goalie in training camp that year. And uh, I was able to get an opportunity to play those games, those six games because of what I went through uh, with Sudsy, all the help he gave me. I had some, a few more battles though to go through because that year I got sent down to the East Coast League when I knew I was ready for the American Hockey League, but we didn't have any spots because Roberto was there. Um, you know, I could share this with you too, because, you know, your listeners have to know, especially the kids that are going through it. I got sent to Trenton that year, Woody, and I wasn't, I wasn't in the mental mindset to be able to be back at that level. I thought I was ready for the American Hockey League. I wasn't playing well. Booyar Admodovsky was my partner, really good goalie in his time too. And, uh, Bruce Cassidy was our head coach, coach of the Boston Bruins right now. And he was tough and I wasn't playing well. Uh, I remember just my face breaking out with acne, the pressure, the stress. My parents came to visit at one point and we're at dinner. And my dad says, man, he looked across the table. He said, man, if I knew hockey was going to do this to you, I never would have let you play. Wow. 
and I lost a whole bunch of weight. It was just the stress. I was trying my best. I just didn't know how to handle it. So Bruce Cassidy brings me into his office one day, and rightfully so. And he says, you thought you were too good to be here. Well, now you're not good enough to play here, and you're going to sit for the next three weeks and watch Booyar play. And I mean, I'm just devastated. I drive home. I could have just taken the car right off the road right there. I mean, I thought I was done. And uh, I get back to my apartment. There's a post-it note on my front door. And my roommate, um, Scott Bertoli was his name. He left a note there and he said, call Butch. Uh, he wants to talk to you. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, what can this guy possibly tell me right now? Like my heart's already out of my body. <laughs> and uh, I call him up and he said something. It was pretty sarcastic. He says, there's most times in life you get what you deserve and this time you don't. Uh, Wade Flaherty blew his shoulder uh, up top for the Islanders. So Roberto's going from Lowell up to Long Island and you're going to Lowell. The hardest part about getting off that call was not burning rubber out of my driveway after I'd packed up my truck to get out of there. And I got myself up to Lowell and played some good games. And before you know it, I was spending the last two months of that year for the Islanders and in my first two games I got first star in both of them and and won both of them so that was pretty much at that point where Mike Milbury had thought you know he had a diamond in the rough because I persevered through it wow and and of course I think we should just for those who don't know I think most goalie geeks are going to know this but Sudzi um Sudarshan Maharaj is the goalie coach now for the Anaheim Ducks and a big part of John Gibson's success so for for our listeners part of his success and you know what everything Sudzi's ever touched has been good yeah, um, I wonder if he oftentimes gets enough credit that he deserves. Yeah, no, we, we've we've wondered that ourselves as well. And it's it's funny because you look at Gibson and there are times where when I'm asked about it, I'm like, yeah, you know, technically. But, you know, there's there's some things you wonder about. But when you talk to Sudsy, it's like that. That's how, like he recognizes that if he turns him into two, he'll lose all those elements that make him special. And so here I am from the outside. I've been guilty of looking just at technique. And, and failing to recognize at times that a guy like Sudsy understands the game so much more than that. And he's, he's reined in certain things, but not gone too forward, far. Just a perfect balance. And now he's got one of the best young goalies in the NHL. And I, you're right. I think he deserves more credit for it. You know what, Woody? I, I think about this a lot. Um, however you want to think of it, the universe will conspire to help you if you want something bad enough. I wanted hockey bad enough. And when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And that was exactly the situation that happened over and over in my career. But that would have been one of the first was meeting Sudsy. Okay. So next up on that list, if, if, am I safe to say, is Ben Waller with the Rangers? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I get to Hartford, okay? And it's the lockout year. It's the 0405 lockout year. Jason LaBarber is my partner, who was just a terrific partner, a terrific example for a guy where you might not want to play sometimes on a Sunday at the tail end of a three-on-three afternoon game in Albany because you don't feel it. But then your partner goes in and plays that game and gets first star. And it dawns on you that you can push yourself harder. Jason LaBarber was one of the best examples of a gamer I ever played with. So he was, and the reason why I bring this up, he was the AHL MVP and the top goalie the year before. So now I'm joining the team. I'm 27 years old. I'm a backup for that 0405 lockout. But I know that I'm going to be working with Benoit Allaire. So I'm, I'm excited to get started. And I did anything he said. Eat lima beans, I'm eating lima beans. And again, it's one of those examples where I was ready for having a, a really great teacher through a season. I had my summer guy, 
but now I needed help through a season. First time I ever had a goalie coach and talk about selfless. Benoit Allaire did not have to stay with us in Hartford all year. He was on an NHL coaching contract, but because he was so dedicated to his job and to Jason and I, every day before practice, 30 minutes, every day after 40 minutes, and he was there every day. Didn't have to be, but he was there every day. First thing he did when I met him, he gave me 10 Sean Burke VHS tapes from their time working together when it used to be the Phoenix Coyotes. And he said, big man, if you can play like this guy and you're the same size, you'll play in the NHL. I took those VHS tapes. I went to the uh, Hartford Mall and there was an Apple store that had just opened. And I bought a converter so that I could put the VHS tape in and then bring it into my computer, my MacBook Pro, and then have a final cut, edit it. And I clipped every single, when does Sean Burke get to his post? When does he, you know, where does he play depth wise off the rush? Three on twos, two on ones, everything in zone. Where does he play? Where does he stand? And I made my own highlight. If it wasn't for those tapes, like it's one thing for your coach to be great and help you in practice, but if you don't see somebody else doing it, that's your body type, then you have a hard time buying in. But I saw Sean Burke doing it to this level at the NHL, and I literally copied everything. And I think that's why to this day, you know, I've kind of fallen into TV because I spent so much time on video, final cut, editing, and same thing with goalie coaching for, for youth hockey players. But that was a really good experience. and. If it wasn't for that help, I, I never would have had a chance to play up in New York because I earned uh, the respect. Even as a backup, I ended up leading the league in safe percentage or maybe second behind Cam Ward at the time. But Jason and I were at tops. I fought for minutes. I made every second count. And Jason was clearly the number one. LaBarbera was the number one. But I played well enough as a number two that the Rangers two years later knew that I was going to be able to be a number two in the NHL because I can go two weeks between starts and play. We always hear, or I always hear it from his goalies and, and from Benny himself, um, you know, beat the pass, solve the equation, question, answer. Was it as simple as that? Like you would have changed, I'm guessing your depth a little bit more inside out like Sean was. And that was a massive transformation for him in Arizona or the Coyotes, Phoenix at the time. And he's talked about that on this podcast. What were some of the, like, when you look back at those takeaways, are there things that still apply today as a teacher, as a, as a coach with youth hockey goaltenders in terms of the system and the style? And what, what were some of the keys? So we started with what you said there. And all of those phrases that you mentioned, those were, those were them. And it was always set your feet. Um, it, it was moving less, but understanding how to move in a straight line. I was when the puck was at the point in zone, when we were in our D zone structure, I'd be out to the top of the paint, drifting back. I had some movement in and out. And I went from that kind of goalie over challenging in those situations to playing exclusively in my blue paint and taking straight lines through the crease instead of arcing and always stopping, always getting a complete stop over trying to grab more depth. So being able to set my feet, but set my head so I could see the release a little bit cleaner. Um, we took so many shots from the tops of the circles and dots during practice and not the slot area, but outside and being able to get confident by stopping shot after shot. I got to a point where I knew if I stood right here on the old crease line in the blue paint, I could stop 10 for 10. 
That's all I had to do. Is And then once I gave myself that permission, I was able to do it in games. But Benny was all of that. And then on top of that, everything around the net, you know, bringing in structure for us to get to the post and where to have your back leg at 45 degrees rather than on the goal line, um, four quarters behind the net. My net stuff got even better. He was great at everything, Woody. Honestly, it was, uh, he broke down every piece. This is the transition to your life now, but I do want to ask, because there were a couple separate stints, including one in 2010-11 after your last year in the NHL, and then one in 05-06, Russia. I'm guessing there may be some stories from your experiences in the KHL. What was you like from a playing standpoint? The first stint with Yaroslav was 9:23. Last stint was with CSKA. What was what were those adjustments like? What was your experience like culturally as well as style of play and translating how you played in the NHL to overseas? Right. Look, I was one of the first goalies to go over there. There was um, a goalie by the name of Mark Lamoth that was in Yaroslav the year before me. Yep. But goalies from North America, when I went in 05-06, had only started going in 04-05 the year before. And most guys went for like two weeks, a month, and then split. I mean, Gar Snow left his equipment in St. Petersburg. He just got on a plane and left everything there. Well, and I remember Pekka Rinne, when he went in the the next lot, like like he was never going back. The style of play, he just felt it was just so different from the NHL. It did him no good, and he was happy to get out of there. No, look, I mean, I was there because I was there for a different reason. Number one, I had no money. And number two, I had to play well enough to earn the respect overseas to force an NHL team. I wasn't certain it was going to be the Rangers, but force any team out of the 30 at the time to give me a contract to come back on a one-way because that was the only way you were going to get an opportunity back then was coming back on a one-way. And I played all year with the hope of coming back to the NHL. And, and like you said, you know, fortunately enough for me, I, I was 923 and that was enough. That was enough. Just that number. If you're in the 920s, 930s, and you're an American League goalie or a KHL goalie, people are going to come and watch and find out what that number is all about. That's what it represents. The safe percentage does that. And if you're below 90, well, the door is closed and you're out of business, right? And that, that happened to me on my second tour there. When I was there the second time with, with Seska playing for the Red Army, I was below 90. We had a miserable team, unlike the Yaroslavl team that I played for where we were in first place. And it affected, but it's so deep. I mean, it would take another hour for, for me to walk you through a day in Russia with the Baza, the team base, you know, the needles that you're forced to take, um, the conditions that you're living in, the food, the food that runs through you, the toilets without seats, um, you know, the Russian gas. I mean, I was there when it was very primitive, right? Okay. So I think that might, we may, what we'll do there is we'll save that. That can be another, we'll, we'll do a part two. I it, it is. It's an hour, we'll just, right? We'll, we'll, like it's an hour. We'll just do an hour on Russia another day, but let's use this as a transition. You talked about 923 one year, 897 the next year, and how those two numbers can be the difference or are the difference between teams having interest and teams just not even giving you a second look. Um, since you've retired with, with ClearSight Analytics and the work you've done there, how did you go to that side? Because context matters so much between those two numbers. And I felt it's always been lacking. Um, in, you know, it, There's just not enough in a save percentage to tell me how a goalie got there and how much of it was his performance and his teams. Walk me through how you developed this passion for analytics and started this company and, and some of the lessons you've learned since. Well, I guess 
First of all, it goes back to being a backup goalie. Uh, I think I sat on the bench for something like 276 games, something like that, because I get my pension from the NHL, and I believe that's the number. So I sat on the bench a lot, right? And when I was going through that transition of understanding that I want to play in the NHL, and I don't care how many games a year, I just want to play in the league, um, you're willing to take a lesser role, but you also have to be a little bit older by that point. So I'm getting on to 28 and 29 when it really dawns on me that I have to actually root. I have to root for the other guy in the net to play well, help him play well, and be ready if I get called upon. Understanding your role, not when you're a young guy, where it's you actually, if anybody's being honest that's ever been a goalie, you want the other guy to let in goals so you get to go in and play. You know, and that's, that's a tough transition mentally because I, I hired a sports psychologist when I was 27. I wish I had the courage to do it earlier. Um, but that year, I hired a sports psychologist. And the first thing we worked on was that when the goalie in the net, in this case, it was Jason LaBarber, when he makes a save in Hartford, you bring it into the chest too. When he low blocker puts it in the corner, you're making that save too. And run through that mental exercise when you're on the bench and see yourself making that save. And it's okay to back it up with a little action too. You, if you watch me back in those days and backing up Henrik after that, I was always moving on the bench because I was making saves too. But if the guys were ever having a bad night, I could go in there, get tossed in and be fine. You know, I'd be okay because I've already warmed up my head. I've already kept warm in my body and I had a really positive frame of mind and attitude. So that was a big thing. And, and then when that transition happened, I was able to be a goalie that was going to be somebody that was going to be used in the NHL and play some games. Now, the reason why I understand that now, and it's so important, is that I was always focused on scoring chances. During hockey games, if Henrik was playing, and I was really focused as if I was playing, I'd even argue that I was the most focused person in the building that wasn't on the ice. I was able to then say to myself, okay, well, he had three breakaways. He stopped three. That's a goal right there. I just have these little exercises of, okay, well, that was a pass across. That was tough. And after the game, I could say to Henrik, hey, man, you had at least 12 grade-A scoring opportunities. And I went through them you know, verbally with him, and I'd say, you gave up two goals. That should have been four. So that's a good game, Hank. And I'm telling you right now, like, that save you made, and we would have that kind of a conversation. Now, the next day, John Tortorella, he put out his scoring chance list, and Every coach has analytics. They just don't really call it that. Even John at the time, smart coach, uh, organized, thorough. He'd have a list, and then he'd have primary uh, contributor, primary offender for every scoring chance for and against, and he'd have a plus-minus for each player. And the plus-minus that the NHL.com would have would not reflect what John would think as it would reflect his players on his team. So you could be a minus 16, but on John's list, you could be a plus four. And that's all that mattered to us. So we had our own analytics. But what I realized during that time was that our sport doesn't really have a way to consistently evaluate scoring chances league-wide. We had it for our team, but not for the league, because nobody's ever stepped up and done the exercise of standardizing and categorizing what a scoring chance really is. How would you know that a breakaway only goes in one every three times unless you had all 1,500 breakaways from the 2018-19 season. And then you just do that per shot type for everything that you've done. And then once you get to that exercise, you start splitting things up and seeing what the difference is between a shot that's deflected from the ice versus one that's deflected on a wrister or a drifter from the point. They're both deflections, but they're very different. And screens, whether you have layers or if it's just your own player 
or if it's just one of their guys. Those are different as well. And you have to go through this exercise, and that's exactly what our company's done. And we believe we're the first one to have 34 points of context for every shot that's been taken over the last five years. And you do everything manually in terms of tracking to get that context. That's right. Yeah, we do it all manually. Um, We've done it. This is our fifth year, and we have over 350,000 shots analyzed. And the points of data per shot are as granular as, you know, lefty righty, where the exact location came from to where it was received and shot from and the strength of play. Was it off the rush? Was it a zone entry? Was it even manned or odd? And it goes on and on and on. The, The sequence matters most to us because, and this is the funny thing about this exercise, it has to be a goalie that does this because we know the limitations of the goaltender better than anybody. We've played the game. So I know the pass across the ice is going to be difficult because when the puck stays on the same side of the ice, I physically never have to really open my legs. The only time I have to open my legs to move is when the puck just crosses the line that separates the ice in two parts there, which we coined the, at one point, Royal Road, but I call it the slot line now. But when the puck goes across the slot, the second that it crosses that imaginary line that splits the ice in two, that's the first time I ever have to open my legs. That's, that's a, a massive transition line. And then you've got to get your proper angle. So the path that you're taking to the puck, your depth gets compromised, your squareness gets compromised, and you've got to rotate and get your head around to see it for the first time with, without that all important half of a second of clear sight, which really makes something go from very difficult to very easy if you're able to capture it. And when you look at transition lines on the ice, There's really only four of them. There's the line that I described in front, which we call the slot line. There's a line that splits the net in behind the net, where if it's on the left post, you've got your head over your left shoulder and the puck moves past that midpoint. Well, now I've got to go to my right shoulder. So there's some transition there. And then the other two transition lines are your dead angle line that runs from the back post to under the hash at the wall on both sides. And most goalies, and you know this, as soon as the puck comes outside that dead angle area, well, you better get off your post and it goes back inside the dead angle. Well, you've got to transition back to your post. So there's a lot of movements that you have to be aware of when you're tracking these things that are important. And the important thing now is that we have context for every scoring chance on the ice and we have an expected goals model. And that's a really big deal because now you've been able to put together something that really uh, charts goalie to goalie averages and you can look at it everybody apples to apples are you surprised or maybe not that this information it comes this is from the goaltending side of things how much it's taught you and other nhl teams and clients about scoring because i mean it makes sense it's it's intuitively it's hey if we figure out what the hardest chances are for the goalies to to stop and what's the most effective way and how these goalies fare on certain chances then as, an, as a team, we should also be trying to create, limit them at our end and create them at the other end. And we've seen that, I think, manifest itself with, say, like, you know, Pittsburgh with their championships and Washington with their, with their Stanley Cup championship as well. Totally. And, um, you know, it's funny when you look at how important the cross ice pass is and how much, you know, of course, I've been talking about it for quite some time. And, and we've got four teams that we're working with that do it very well, Washington being one of them. and. Last year in the NHL, Woody, there was 1,134 more passes across the slot line than in 2017-18. Wow. All right? 
And don't forget, those are going in one every three times on average. So there's a big chunk of the increase in goals that are being scored, right? And, and here's why I'm confident about what we're doing right now. And if you want to have an expected goals model, well, it better match what the actual goals that are being scored in the NHL are, right? So every Monday, um, our head of quality control, John Healy, he'll send me over uh, an output with the games that we have tracked to date and the shots we've analyzed, the actual goals scored in the NHL, and then our expected goals model and how much should be scored based on all of our tracking. And last week I was thrilled. It was 98.7% accurate, our goal model. This week it's 99.6. Our goal model is 99.6. So in the NHL right now, uh, excluding empty netters, there's been 1,827 goals scored. Our expected goals model has 1,835. So if I'm telling you that Jacob Markstrom has had, I'm just going to walk over to my paper here that I wrote down for you. He's had 16 breakaways this year. He's given up eight goals. So his expected goals, he's actually given up 3.63 more than he should have based on those, right? So that's just one example of where you'd say, okay, you know, look at your goalie, get the data, look at the video. What can we work on? Maybe he's, I haven't looked at his 16 breakaways because I had a million other things to do today, but maybe, maybe he's drawing his skate leg back to the post and he's not overlapping and, and, and playing in front of his post on his retreat when he's making his save. Or maybe he's, not, maybe he's not at the top of his crease when the puck carrier gets to the bottom of the hash mark. You could find these things in the data and that's why I get excited about it. Well, and, and I guess from a coaching standpoint as a goalie coach, it's much, it goes bad. This goes back to your story about junior. I got scored 34 times on low high passes into the slot. How do I get better at that? Rather than just going out and practicing like, today we're going to work on this randomly. It's today we're going to work on this because the numbers say this is an area of exposure. Freddie Anderson a couple of years ago told me that um, he felt like low high plays were an issue for him and that they then spent the year um, and I don't know whether this comes from analytics or just their observation, but they spent the year working on him getting more comfortable in uncomfortable situations off his post, that it's not always going to be a perfect rep. And his numbers improved on those types of plays. So it lets you contextualize um, both your successes and your failures, which I would imagine as a coach lets you then target them for improvement from the goaltending side of things. A hundred percent. You know, and I've shared that with Steve Breer there. And he does a great job with the goalies and anybody that's getting the information, it's pretty straightforward now, Woody. I mean, it's um, yeah, our, our pre-scouts that we have for the goalies around the league. It's very quick to populate. And if you've got a blue box around your data, that's something you're doing very well. That means you're plus three expected goals or more in the plus. That means you've stopped three more goals than you should have surrendered for your team. And if you're a negative three or under, then you're in red. And then, so I'll, I'll give you another example from Markstrom because I looked at him today. And, and screens have been something where he's, he's close to that negative three number. He's given up eight on 33. But you still have to take it down one more layer and see where and what types of screens he's been giving up. Well, the defensive screens he's given up one, layered one, offensive where it's just one player is one. But it's the screen deflections where he's had seven of them but given up three. Now, those are very difficult to stop. Those are going in on average just about as much as a breakaway does. So how are you going to help your goalie sometimes look past goals too? And that's how you set up your practices. 
when I'm working with youth hockey goalies and collegiate goalies and prep school goalies from our area, our drills are set up so that they are game-like where if we're going to work on slot line passes, dot to dot, well, guess what? On six, you're supposed to give up two, you know? And if you're stopping six out of six, well, then we've got to change the passing uh, path because it's too easy for you. And if we're giving up four and five out of six, well, then I'm going to widen out the drill until you're ready to go. But I'm always going to hit that sweet spot mentally that you're going to be working within the structure of how difficult any shot type really is. Well, I guess conversely, too, for a goaltender who may be struggling statistically but feel good about their game, um, if you can add some of that context with like, not, not that you ever want the excuse, hey, it wasn't your fault. But like, just like you talking to Lundquist after a certain game back when you were playing, sometimes the numbers make us feel a certain way, but the reality is they were actually better than they could have been or maybe should have been statistically. It's very, uh, of course. The answer, the quick answer is yes. I think you need the, as any goalie coach that's working in the NHL knows, you're always, you're always uh, about two feet away from getting a kick in the ass a day after you got a pat on the back. Because... Every single goalie coach takes heat from the coach. And I know of many of the relationships, and that's just the reality of it. It's also nice from this perspective to have a little data to back it up where um, Halak and Rask come to mind. They're very good at stopping clear-sighted shots on two-on-ones with a puck carrier comes into that slot area and shoots. So Boston can give that shot to their goaltender because their goalies are very good at stopping it. And... If the goalie happens to give one up and the coach has something to say about it, I'd like to be Bob Essenza and say, you know what? Well, we've had 22 of these and, and the, our guys have only given up two, right? And, and that was actually a fact. Last year, they only gave up two combined. Wow. And the number of total shots was higher than that. But the fact of the matter is you'll stay with your structure longer and not abandon what you're doing because you've got some really good information to back it up. Well, speaking of tough environments... Um, Henrik Lundqvist. Now, there's a guy you watched every watch every game, and I think the narrative around the league, as numbers have maybe dipped, has been always oh, getting older, and is he still elite? I remember watching him last season from a distance, and I'm like, in the first half, I'm like, this guy, until that team just no longer had a chance. To me, he was still Henrik Lundqvist, and I thought that as long as that team had a chance, you can get that out of him. Still, what's been interesting is, um, you know, this year it seems like that environment's tough again. So. Uh, what do the numbers sort of tell you on Henrik Lundqvist? Well, it is just that. So the Rangers give up the most scoring chances of any team in the league. So you start there. Uh, the amount of shots that Henrik himself and Georgiev has been equally as strong, but Henrik actually even better. Um, he's 11th. He's 11th in the NHL right now because he's coming off of three pretty tough games. But prior to that, he was number one. So Right now, he's 11th in save percentage differential. So you take the expected save percentage he should have based on all of the shots that he's faced so far this year, and then you plug in the goals that he's allowed, and then you get the difference between how many saves he was expected to make, between how many saves he actually made in percentage, and then you get a save percentage differential. And right now, he is 11th. He's 11th. So very respectable because he's playing for the most difficult team in hockey to play for. Is that the worst environment in terms of like just tough, tough on goalies, the shots they're facing and the types of chances they're seeing right now? Well, for the starters, when we're going starters against starters, Henrik has the toughest environment. Um, 
Geez, you look at this list. I'm actually just pulling it up right now. The expected save percentage, easiest place, easiest place is playing for the Islanders in Thomas Grice. This one's actually interesting. I thought today when I looked at it, second easiest for starters, Jonas Corposalo, Columbus. That's surprising. So that kind of really speaks to a problem there that they have in net because they're not doing well and he's not playing well and he's playing in an easy environment. I'm sure Tortoro would be happy to hear that or, or mad, of course. But Darcy Kemper, number three, uh, third most structured defensive team to play for. Um, and for the worst, actually, surprisingly enough, it's Florida. I was, I was just going to say, my, my guess is, as everybody's ripping into that, I watched him play here, and I'm like, no chance, no chance. Two breakaways, stopped them both. Like you see, He came in in relief, gave up two goals on, on really tough plays. One was like cross the slot line, below the goal line, like everything, all the factors were there. Um, and he stopped two breakaways, he ends up with a fit, like a, you know, like a 660 save percentage in the, in, the, in the night. Like tough place to play right now. Totally. And, and right now it's Lundqvist is just a, a couple percentage points just below Jones. So the, the five most difficult right now are, are for starters, Bobrovsky, Jones, Lundqvist, Grubauer, Hart, and then Markstrom. Okay. We're talking about the toughest environments. Not surprised Bobrovsky was up on that list in the least, neither with Lundqvist. Those sort of match the eye test. Um, despite the fact a lot of people want to rip on Bob for his numbers. What about the easiest? Why, are there some surprises when we take a look at the easiest environment so far in 1920? Well, I think there's the guys that you expect to be up there. Uh, Thomas Grice, of, co- of course, with the way the Islanders defend. So he's number one. He plays for the easiest environment. But you've got to give this guy credit. Even though it's been relatively easy, he still makes big saves, and he's had a terrific year. Uh, the, the one that really pops out, though, is, is the Jonas Corposalo because I think it's it's interesting when you see how a goalie can sink a very good team. And then you wonder if you're on that coaching staff, if you've got to change things within your structure, are we pressing too much from dots to walls in the D zone? Are we cutting off the top and we should be allowing the point? I think they question a lot of things coaches would when they're not sure about their goalie and knowing towards, he probably has some questions on Corpus for that because the environment he's playing in is, actually the second easiest defensive environment of all the starting goalies right now. Um, Kemper after that, then the Carolina goalies, and then, surprisingly, uh, Miko Koskinen. So Edmonton's done something uh, over there that looks sustainable as far as making an environment for your goalie, big goalie that's going to be able to play shot first and not worry about slot line passes. Something, something good's happening there in Edmonton, Willie. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's called Dave Tippett. That probably helps a little bit. And, I, and you got to give it credit, too. Like, as you said, just because you're in it, you can still outperform an easy environment. Like, is it easier to play in that environment? Yes, but you can still be really good within it. Not all goalies are. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, even shot volume can, you talked about it mentally. You know, not every goalie plays in a low shot environment and is comfortable Mentally, not every goalie can make that adjustment. And Koskinen, I think the environment's better, but I think, you know, watching and knowing Dustin Schwartz, the goalie coach there, they've done some work as well to put him in a position to use that big frame better. Um, you combine that with a mo- more predictable environment. You know that one better than anyone, right? Totally. And, and see, that's where I would go with using the information. Use the data. Um, if you've got a goalie that's really good with clear-sighted shots and he's a guy of that size, 
then do your best just to pick up your checks around him and make the opposition feel like they have an open shot. When I watch the Islanders, I watch them a lot. They pack it in in their own zone. They don't send their winger across to cut off the top and not allow that shot to the point, the pass rather to the point. They'll stay between the dots and not chase you and, and stretch themselves out and try and kill plays that they're not sure about their goalie stopping. That's where things get really messed up. If your goalie, oh, you're going to like this one. Speaking of stats, okay, bad goals, right? They're low percentage goals, goals that go in 8% of the time or less. You have an 86% chance to lose the game when your goalie gives up a low percentage goal. All right? So if you give up a low percentage goal in the game, what happens is the psyche of your defense now feels like, especially on a clear-sighted shot from 40 feet, they feel like they've got to go and close on everybody now. And in that attempt to shut down and kill the play 40 feet away from the net with a shot you should be letting your goalie receive, they get stretched out and open up the slot line pass. Now your goalie's in a position where he's got to move more to make the next save. His save now becomes more difficult. But you can see how that trends into a psyche of a hockey club where you don't trust your goalie, and now you're getting opened up a little bit more than maybe you were in the beginning of the year. Uh, the New Jersey Devils locally for us are a good example. They're not that bad defensively. They're not that bad offensively, especially over the first 10 games. But Corey Schneider, who I love, I've used him as an example, Woody, for every year of my video coaching for my goalie school, for the youth goalies, but not in the last two, two and a half years because he's been going through a tough time. And a lot of that is pertaining to what has been well-documented health-wise. But now your goalie starts giving up a few goals that he should have, and everyone gets stretched out, and now there's no trust. I remember this from a few years ago, watching the Buffalo Sabres when Ryan Miller was still there. I was at home one night, and I was watching this. There was a two-on-one. The Bruins had a two-on-one, and he came out and challenged, and he took the shot just like he should. And the pass went across the slot line, tap in behind him. His defenseman did a terrible job protecting the slot line. He allowed the pass go through. 16 seconds later, the Bruins off the faceoff get another two-on-one, and Ryan Miller now, he is back in his blue paint, back all the way up because he doesn't trust the back door, and he gets beat high with a clear-sighted shot. You could see the difference of what it did to a goalie in 16 seconds and how that affected his psyche and the trust that he didn't have with his defenders. And now he looks bad on the second one that he gets beat clean on, but that's every goalie in every environment. It goes both ways. If your goalie plays poor for you, you start trying to do a little too much to help. If your goalie is playing great for you, then you have the flexibility to cheat a little bit and go up ice and have a little more offense. The goalie, I like that old saying, Woody, where a goalie is 70% of the game when you've got a good one. He's 70% of the game. But when you don't have one, he's 100% of the game. And that really reflects where the data would point us when we're trying to figure out, is it the environment or is it the goalie? Is it the goalie or the environment? Well, it's interesting because you bring that up. I, I immediately go back to Steve Mason in Columbus and he made some changes in his game later in his career there. Bob was already there where he, his game looked better. He looked better. But as he told me after the trade to Philadelphia where he had immediate success, it was never going to work in Columbus because that trust you just talked about had been broken. And so... 
once his teammates didn't trust him to make easy saves and started chasing, as you talked about, now all of a sudden he can't trust them to be where they're supposed to be because they're too busy trying to do his job and pretty soon nobody's doing their own job. And once that snowball, once that snowball is going downhill, you know, it's tough to, to stop. And that's why I wonder, cumulative, the cumulative effect of playing behind a bad team. You talk about it. I, I look at Edmonton for years before Tippett came in. Uh, I look at San Jose right now. You said Jones, toughest, one of the toughest environments in the NHL. To me, anecdotally, and, and at least the eye test, I'm guessing they've been that way for a couple years. And again, a couple breakdowns are one thing, but if that pass gets through that seam that it's not supposed to six, seven, eight times in a row, you're going to start to cheat to it. And as soon as you start to cheat to it in this league, you're done. The guy with the puck sees it and he's, and he's blown it by your short side. And that's when everybody goes, oh, that's a bad goal. So it's... It- well, hey, Woody, what about the Islanders last year, right? What about the Islanders two years ago compared to last season? They went from the worst defensive team in hockey, changed the coaching staff, changed one goalie, but Halak goes to Boston and does equally as well anyway. But Grice is the same guy in the same net, but everything around him changed. And I always come back to protecting the slot line. If you could protect the slot line as a defensive mindset responsibility, you are going to help your goalie tenfold. Two years ago, the Islanders gave up the slot line pass 149 times, led the league, led the league. Last year, they gave up the fewest 92 times. They went from 149 to 92 in one year. And again, those are goals. They go in one every three times. So when you see a team collectively change based on coaching, structure, mindset, it's amazing what can happen. You can take the same guys and help them defend. I've always said this when it comes to practice for anybody that's involved in youth hockey. Watch how your defensemen defend two-on-ones during practice. And watch how frequently the pass gets through and they give a half effort. And then tell them the very next day, if you want to do a two-day study, tell them the very next day, everybody, this line right here, imaginary line, divides the ice in half. The player with the puck doesn't carry it across this line, and the pass doesn't come across this line. This This is actually your net. In fact, this is your net, guys, and you're speaking to the defenseman. It doesn't get through here. Now you see the uh, results in practice. It's unbelievable. I did this all the way back to the first year when I retired and I was working at Quinnipiac. It was amazing. It was amazing. But it was mindset, and then that mindset influences the positioning of the player when they force their pressure point because they have a goal, and it's not to let the puck or player cross that midline. Well, and it's interesting because what you're doing there is we, we say good defensive team, bad defensive team. The eye test would tell us, I mean, the Islanders two years ago was like watching an all-star game. It was real fun to watch, but it couldn't have been fun for the goaltenders. It was wide open back and forth both ways. But what that slot line number is, is, is provide context to what good defense can look like. Like it's an actual measurable of, hey, this is a priority or the drill you talked about. This is a priority. It's not just we need to be better defensively. It's here's a specific thing we need to prevent from happening and we will be a better team. And, and it comes back to expected goals. For years, people in analytics wanted to measure things based on Corsi, but there's no context there, especially to even help a coaching staff, right? You can't just tell a coaching staff, give up fewer shots. You've got to come in and you've got to say, this is the specific shot type that we're giving up frequently. Here's the number of them. Here's the video. Here's the 149 clips that we've got opened up across our slot line. And 
here's how we're going to change our defensive zone posture and where we're going to pressure and how we're going to tidy this up. But you see that in the results and the expected goals is a really neat thing because you see that expected number come down. You see it come down. And as long as your goalies are staying league average, you give up fewer goals. Do you think, and I, and I promise we'll make this the last one, so I've taken up way too much of your time, which I tend to do on this podcast. Darren's going to have a chuckle when he hears me saying this. Um, the uh, When you get into that situation where it becomes cumulative, where you watch a goalie and there's maybe nothing wrong with his game, but he's, it's just gotten off to a bad start and it's tough to start the bleeding and that trust has started to slip. Can you isolate numbers that they do well? Like, would a trade in a new environment be enough for a Martin Jones or a Corey Schneider to all of a sudden have them back at the levels we used to talk to them about just because they get to reset in a new environment? I guess part two of that question, because I can never just ask one last question, is trades, free agent signings. When you layer through this context that you provide through ClearSight Analytics, are you, should a team theoretically be able to say, this goalie excels at this type of play defensively or is weak at this type of play. We give up a ton of these or we don't. This guy's going to be a fit or not. 100%. One of the better questions I've ever been asked. So I don't mind you going long here, Woody, but that's it. That's how this fits. So there's 17 different shot types uh, that we categorize individually that go in 20% more, sorry, 20% or more. So if we can take a look at the grade A scoring opportunities, those ones there, the 17 that I'm talking about, let's see which ones we give up and let's see how the goalie performs when he faces those based on the frequency of shots that he faced the year before on maybe his other team. 100%. That's how I wouldn't even make a trade without knowing this information about the goaltender. I wouldn't. I think it's, it's negligence to do that. I think you've got to know exactly what you're getting Shot type by shot type, the grade A chances are the most important. I certainly wouldn't want to trade for a goalie that gives up a lot of low percentage shots, but the eye test would probably point you to knowing how to point that guy out. But you want to know if you're a team that's giving up certain shot types because maybe you have a smaller defense and maybe you don't box out well and get sticks. Well, I'd certainly want to know what kind of goalie I have that looks through screens. And I'd certainly want to know what goalie I have that responds to broken plays and rebounds. Yeah, every single shot type. We have 17 different shot types for the high percentage shots, nine different shot types for the mid-percentage shots, and another seven for low percentage shots. Different shot types, but context to each of them that would point you to the proper fit for your team's needs. That's perfect. And I would imagine you could probably, and if you've got a good goalie coach involved, you're matching those analytics to the eye test. Like you said, you, you take the numbers and recognize the deficiency. There's a good chance a, a good goalie coach is going to be able to tell you why. Exactly. I mean, it's just information. It's, it's sometimes the word analytics scares us all. If I could, I'd go back in time five years ago and just change our company name from ClearSight Analytics to ClearSight Information right. or stats even. But, you know, uh, that's the one part you've got to get over. And that's for all of us. Steve, this has been awesome, man. From the career stories to, I, I mean, the fascinating uh, discussion about numbers and the context that you guys add over at ClearSight Analytics. I've really enjoyed this. I know our listeners are going to as well. Some of them maybe hopefully start watching goaltenders with a different eye the way you do. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to be, to be a part of the Ingle Radio podcast. Hey, Woody, for you, anytime. And uh, you know, I'm a phone call away. For the, for the listeners, if they want to check out our website, 
www.csahockey.com. You can see top fives for different shot types and things of rankings. It's it's a pretty neat website. We update that uh, on the second of every month. And for the NHL teams, uh, the the opportunity to dig a little deeper than those top five that the public, make sure you call these guys because I know we got goalie coaches around the league that listen to this. If you're not accessing this information, chances are you're behind. (laughs) Thanks, Woody. That's right up there with the coolest conversations I have heard with an athlete, not just in Google Radio, the podcast, but uh, but across every platform. Because of going back to the junior days and having to fight through things and and problems of his own making, Hutchin, I I think you could probably relate to this as a as a father uh, of a, an aspiring goaltender and just what you have to to go through. In trying to fit in and making wrong choices. And that's, that's sort of where I want to start. And isn't it interesting that he, he still sounds a little conflicted about whether he made the right choice, I think. Yeah. You know, and, and so sometimes these decisions are, are very challenging for that reason. Um, I loved, I loved it uh, for the early stories. I have told my son he needs to, uh, to listen to the whole thing. Um, perseverance in the early days, too. I mean, house league hockey for how many years started goaltending so late? Uh, we are both alumni of the Jet Power Credit Union house hockey, um, you know, Did dynasty, dynasty, card. yeah, dynasty. Um, yep. So I'm pretty excited about that. That uh, Steve and I have so much in common. Um, but no, it was it was a fascinating story of perseverance and and really felt sympathy for the for the young man. And and he's doing this all away from home for the first time too, right? So. Um, it, it's a difficult time if, if you're facing that with, with your kids and we're not right there yet, but, uh, may have to face some of those choices at some point. And it's nice that we've got a lot of people like this who we can learn from and lean on a little bit as we, we look to the future. And it's not just preaching, but it's, I did this. I understand why I did this. I'm still maybe confused, uh, conflicted and, uh, about whether I did the right thing or not. Uh, but don't do that. And uh, it's, it's, I thought it was a, a beautiful story of honesty uh, and, and, and perseverance, but, but honesty being first and foremost, uh, the, the number one thing that jumped mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Woody, you got into uh, the, the playing side of things and how he self uh, taught uh, in a lot of occasions about, uh, about where he was. And that, that was really the, the, the foundation for ClearSight Analytics. Yeah, and just a lot of the lessons he learned, right? Like a lot of the, I mean, you know, these days, so much of this, we, we talk about it, our podcast, uh, social media, all these different places where, where we hear about different ways that goalies get better, different evaluations. So just to hear him at a time when there weren't even goalie coaches back then where he's, you know, I, I don't want to go to goalie school and just do all the drills that we do every summer. I want to identify weaknesses in my game specifically so that when I go to goalie school, I can work on things that will help me improve um, some of the patterns, some of the, some of the areas of my game that are being exploited in junior hockey. And in, in, in a lot of ways, a precursor to what he does with the analytics side, like in terms of just at a much deeper level than, Hey, I'm getting beat on low high plays. Let's work on that. Let's really break down the different ways that offense is created uh, the types of offense that really lead to a certain percentages of goals and higher percentages and low percentages, 
so that not only can the goaltenders identify maybe areas where they're getting better or weaker or need to improve on, um, but teams can figure out how to attack certain things. And so just, you know, it's interesting how it's all kind of come together. You know, funny enough, um, you know, to tease next, not to jump ahead, but another Rangers tie-in to tease next week's interview. Um, we've got Mackenzie Skapsky, who just retired this week, uh, played some time with the New York Rangers, worked with Benoit Allaire, uh, and he's he's kind of recognized a lot of the same things. And, and we've had this conversation, and we'll bring it to you next week. He's he started something called assertion goaltending, uh, which he, they kind of launched the site as they as he announced his retirement this week. And a lot of the themes that we heard from Valaket run through Skapsky, not just in that the teaching principles are foundations he learned with Alaire and the Rangers, but in terms of in today's day and age where there is so much information available and there are so many goalie coaches in so many camps, is anyone doing what Valaket did in terms of identifying foundation and providing support for it so that you can continue to get better in a season? Or are you just going to a bunch of different places and doing a bunch of different drills and learning a bunch of different things? And how do you, and not really ever understanding how you incorporate them into a game plan on a week to week basis in the season. So I'm looking forward to that one. I think it'll piggyback nicely off of what Valaket's doing. Uh, it's, a, it's an approach that I think ties into what Steve is doing in terms of really rooting down to what works and what doesn't for a goaltending. But in Mackenzie Skapsky's case, with a lot of the same principles Valaket learned from Alaire and, and the Rangers, he's going to take it and give you support to do it on a week in, week out basis, allow you to identify what the parts that work are so that you can have intentional practice each week to focus on them and then take it into your game the next week. Not just, you know, not just, hey, low high plays, but, you know, real foundational stuff. So, you know, it's interesting at a time when the information has never been more prevalent, including the work of Valaket. You know, I wonder how many goaltenders are out there just, just, you know, how many goalies, if you ask, what do you need to work on? What are you good at? Would have a really broad answer and not really be able to dial in on it. That's a good question. Uh, as guys roll through town, uh, not, not specifics, but how many, how many really know that, uh, you know, the, the other part that I really wanted to get to, and I know that we, uh, we should, uh, move on, but one final thought is the theory that you can, a general manager can look at his team and say, we allow these kind of chances. Is there a goaltender out there that's good at stopping these kind of chances and put those two together? And have success. I I didn't think that it it could be that uh, accurate that you could actually put those two together. And Valakat is is a firm believer in through your conversation and and great uh, interviewing. He believes that can that can happen. Well, I think the one example where I believe they will tell you it's happened, unfortunately, without sort of giving you a deeper look into the numbers, you got to take their word for it. But again, we, and I think I've referenced this once or twice before, but Darcy Kemper. Yeah. And the Arizona but we've never Coyotes. seen the proof, right? Like, no. The, and that's the, the thing. Like, is, is John Chica going to share those numbers? Probably not. Yeah. But according to them, they identified things in, that Kemper did well, not from a on the ice eye test standpoint, but from a statistical standpoint, these are types of plays that he exceeds at. These are types of plays that we tend to give up. And we think he's going to be a great fit with us because of that. Because you tell me, like, I like Darcy Kemper's game, but I'd be lying if I said I saw this, right? Well, I didn't think it could be that intricate uh, analytics to uh, the team and the goaltender and putting them together like a puzzle piece. I didn't think that, that you could do that. 
and and maybe maybe it's just maybe it's just one part of it. And it's the a other small part sample too size. Is, yeah, small. But the yeah. other part is like those things have to stay consistent, and right. that that means the way that like how often do you have the way a team plays in terms of the types of chances they give up? Um, how 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 often do you see that stay consistent from year in year out? Whether it's a coaching change, an assistant coaching change a tweak of system based on personnel changing. Like, I don't know how steady and consistent that can be in front of a goaltender in terms of the environment not changing around him to suit his game. But it make, it's always made sense to me. I don't know if, you, if, if there's ever going to be a perfect lock fitting in a perfect key that you can isolate, but it's always made sense to me that you can isolate parts of it. I, I watched it with Roberto Luongo in Vancouver. Like, yeah. He was the example I went to because his game was one I got to know really well. Um, Roberto was a great end zone goaltender. Point to point, his ability to read game and get to the top of his crease and beat plays, was that was what his separator was. But, the, the, but the don't put him there. behind a team that plays rush chances. And don't put Wait. him behind the John Tortorella era Vancouver Canucks who all collapse in front of the net and all of a sudden the puck's bouncing off bodies. And all of a sudden, he's at the top of the crease with a read, and it's bouncing around, and it ends up on the back door. And that didn't play to his strength. Lateral movement and speed was not his strength. And so his numbers suffered. The reason why I wasn't buying into the theory, because the theory makes sense, was I'd never heard anybody of any uh, significance in the analytics world be able to tell me that it, that, that it does exist. Steven did that. Uh, Hutch, do you, as, uh, as somebody that looks at this uh, sort of from from above do you do you buy it oh i buy it absolutely um good yeah no i buy it absolutely i think i think what kevin was saying about how does it change from year to year came to mind as as we were talking but i think then that probably lends itself to to considering how big is the organization's commitment to a certain style of play and we have some organizations that are committed right from the top where the general manager has a philosophy and, and, and it works on its way down and in others, maybe not, not quite so much. And of course, then the GM can <coughs> cough, change as well. Cough, maple leaves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Might've been thinking about that. Well, it but, explains why, why somebody has a good year and then a bad year or why if a goaltender's acquired at the deadline, why that goaltender can't have the same impact that he had uh, on his previous team going to the, to the new team. Or, or look at Edmonton right now where we have a goaltender who's amongst the league leaders who last year was amongst the bottom feeders and nothing mm -hmm. has changed except coaching and philosophy. Um, and that's why I, I just love this for that, ab actually for that very reason, because people get so tied to statistics with an individual player and they don't look at the, the greater context. And examples like Edmonton this year are a wonderful way of saying that that there's so much more to it and and I love that Valaket brings the numbers that back it up I wish I could dig deeper into them Sergey Bobrovsky there's your prime example like how many times on Twitter and social media and I don't I'm not just saying like you know like people who are angry on social media like I mean like established people in the not analytics community but like the sort of the media side of things ripping on that contract hey listen i'm the first to say goaltenders and term don't go together but paying Barbrosi that contract juxtaposing that contract to his numbers which are way subpar right now without the context that steve added for us he plays in the toughest environment for goaltenders of anyone in the national mm -hmm. hockey league 
and yet, they need a great and, goaltender to bail them out of that tough environment. And I love that context, and it, it's a fascinating discussion. But if you go to ClearSight Analytics and you uh, look at the numbers on their site, I think you might be a little surprised where Bobrovsky lands given that discussion. Yeah, but we can't the, quote those numbers. Which the now you got now you got me now you got me checking. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Then, go look he, at goaltender plus minus contribution rating. I just think his his numbers may not be great, but they they paid to have him to to give them a chance. So he he may not have great numbers, but imagine what they'd be without a great goaltender. Good if, point. If that yeah. makes if if that makes sense, they they may never be the numbers may never be great by anybody, but at least they've got a fighting chance with an incredible goaltender. Playing and and the uh, I love how the analytics with with Stevens' uh, explanation the analytics guide you, but you you have to have that player who who's good at or accomplished at this certain side. So you still need the physical attributes or the physical either or the eye test to be able to to put the two together. It, it was impressive. What are you uh, are you going down the rabbit hole? I'm trying to get to the rabbit he's, hole. He's trying, trying to get to the rabbit hole. He just doesn't believe me, I guess. What, you know what, though? No, but that's didn't. what happens with parents. We, 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 doubt, we doubt our that's dads. That's right, yeah. And, and until still, we get to yeah, a certain I'm, age. I'm still and, in my and, teens. And then, <laughs> and then we go, Dad, you know what? You, you, were, you were right about that. It's, uh, it's, it's part of the evolution. Stephen Valakat, ClearSight Analytics, uh, check it out. President and CEO, also analyst uh, for the New York Rangers and former uh, professional goaltender, and uh, just so appreciative of of his time to play in the NHL. Uh, it, it really rings through. We're going to switch gears. We'll we'll check back in with Woody in just a little bit uh, to see uh, if we can throw him a lifeline down the rabbit hole. But Adam McLeddy. Uh, his dad is also an analyst with the New York Rangers, but uh, Adam is the vice president of hockey with visualedge.com. It's a web-based training platform uh, helping you out with the visual performance and the visual performance assessment. It basically helps you train your eyes and and help you out through a bunch of different tests, some which require 3D glasses. But uh, recently, and this this did come for, to us our attention through Carter Hart, and recently, Adam Micheletti uh, caught up uh, with our own David Hutchison, or vice versa, to chat about just exactly what VisualEdge.com entails. Here we are today with uh, Adam Micheletti. Adam, you're, I understand you're the Vice President of Hockey at Visual Edge. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, so I uh, grew up in a hockey family, grew up... Uh, in St. Louis and, and Long Island, uh, went to Boston College and uh, started kind of my hockey career path by uh, joining the Dubuque Fighting Saints of the USHL. So I uh, helped start the the team there when uh, when it was an expansion team and helped oversee the hockey and business operations and uh, worked with Jim Montgomery, who was our head coach there. And we were fortunate to win a couple championships in our three seasons and shifted over to the uh, USHL league office where I oversaw hockey operations for a little over three seasons. And then from there went to uh, the Lincoln stars of the USHL was the team president for a, uh, for a season before jumping in with, uh, with visual edge. Fantastic. So hockey's in your DNA. I'm, I'm sorry for you that you weren't a goaltender, <laughs> uh, but, but that's okay. I don't think my family would have let me <laughs> <laughs> safest place on the ice and the most fun. Right. 
Um, so, so just for people who aren't aware, we, we came to know each other because, uh, quite unsolicited in, uh, Kevin Woodley's interview with Carter Hart, he, he brought up that he regularly works with visual edge software. Uh, and Carter is known certainly as one of those sort of cutting edge guys who will leave no stone unturned and try to, in trying to improve his own performance. And, uh, even at a young age, I think you, you could say that he's a leader in, in the industry in that regard. So um, tell us a little bit about Visual Edge and uh, and how you and Carter came to be connected and and, and what we're trying to do here for goaltenders. Sure. So uh, Visual Edge is uh, basically sports vision training. And I think what's interesting with it is uh, and what makes us unique is everything is done through a laptop or tablet, which is very different than some of the other products out there. And it it allows a pro like Carter Hart to be able to use it wherever he is, wherever he's most comfortable uh, using it for training. But it's also uh, very cost effective for, for youth players as well. And everything is web-based. So you can, as long as you're connected to Wi-Fi, you're able to do the, uh, the training for it. And everything is completely customized to the individual. So what we do is we give everyone a baseline evaluation. And from there, we create a customized training plan because you and I are built differently. And so if we go to a gym when it comes to uh, weightlifting, we're going to be given different, uh, different programs from each other. And it's the same idea with the eyes. And so everything is completely customized to the individual. And just by training the eyes 10 to 15 minutes a session, three sessions a week, you can really start to improve the way you see the puck, the way you track the puck, even just how quickly and accurately you process information. And with the way the game is changing, having that hockey sense is uh, just becoming more and more important. And so that's really what Visual Edge can do. And uh, it's it's kind of a new idea in in hockey. Uh, goalies have been, you know, juggling and doing some other some other things to uh, to train the eyes over the years. Obviously, baseball has been using it for a number of years. And that's really where Visual Edge got its start and was, uh, was with baseball. But uh, we see more and more hockey players wanting to use it. And someone like Carter Hart, we, we were connected last season and uh, he started using it. And uh, now the, the Philadelphia Flyers have their goalies all using it as well. Um, so it's, it's really starting to catch on, not just at the NHL level, but all the way down through, uh, through youth associations. Baseball really is on the cutting edge of a lot of this. I mean, being able to track and hit a hundred mile an hour fastball is, is, is really something that's yeah. remar- remarkable, isn't it? And, and I know right, Kevin's it, spoken it with Freddie Anderson, who's trained with baseball players and, and hitting to train his eyes as well. So what, what, what are those, um, you, you talk about six core skills on your website. Um, talk to us about those six different skills that we're training here. Sure. So, um, we really, there, the six different areas we, uh, we start with, uh, your eye alignment because you want to make sure that the eyes are working together so that you can see an object where it actually exists. So that's really the, the first thing that we test. And then there's a uh, convergence. So for a goalie, it's, it's when objects are coming towards you. So obviously a, a puck coming towards you. Uh, divergence is when you're looking outward. So if you're a forward and you're coming down on a net, knowing exactly where to shoot the puck to have a, the best opportunity to score. Uh, if you're a defenseman on a regroup, you're looking up, trying to find that open passing lane for your teammate. Uh, and then you've got depth perception. So being able to uh, redirect shots, um, accuracy when it comes to passing and receiving passes. And then uh, recognition, which is how quickly and accurately you're processing information. So that's the one that's most closely tied to overall hockey sense. And then uh, tracking, which is 
anticipation, reacting quickly to uh, the shots, deflected pucks, and uh, being able to find the puck around uh, in scrums around the net. So those are really the six areas that that we focus on. And by um, by working on all six, you're able to really give yourself an edge over over your opponents and your teammates. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, are, are you able to, I mean, I know there's numbers that uh, in the software, we had a chance to experiment with it a little bit, uh, both myself and my son, who's a Bantam goaltender. Um, and and you, you get some numbers there that, that reflect your own ability and your own performance and improvement. Is there any way we can uh, compare what he's doing, what I'm doing to, to what Carter is doing? Because I know we've talked about it in the in the sense of these uh, concentration grids that are becoming popular, and his his numbers are sort of otherworldly. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about his visual performance compared to to the average goaltender out there? Sure. And I think one of the one of the great things about Visual Edge is it's important to see how you compare to players your own age, but then also where you want to get to, whether that's uh, CHL players, NCAA players, or NHL players. And so our system does that. And so when you take these tests, especially after that baseline evaluation, you see your exact percentile rank compared to players your own age. And you kind of know where, where you rank there and how you need to improve uh, to get to that next level. And so what, what's great about it is that every six weeks, you take a new evaluation to see how you've improved and, and now where you rank versus, uh, versus that level that you want to get to. And so you, what we've been seeing is that, you know, those, those top NHL guys, whether they're forwards and whether they're skilled forwards or checking forwards, uh, defensive defensemen, offensive defensemen and goalies, um, those top athletes are all visually um, much further along than youth players. And so what we want to do is be able to get you to that next step much faster than just your natural growth. and it's pretty amazing what you see as, as these guys start to improve. And when you start using the system, just how much better you're, you're getting on the ice. We, um, we actually work with the NHL with all their officials. So right now they've got all their officials this year using the, uh, using the program and the response that we've received from them that have been doing the training. They're saying that they, they can process the information much faster. They're being able to, determine was it a high stick was it not a high stick when the puck's crossing the blue line was it offside was it not and as as we know just from over the past couple years there's so much scrutiny uh, on the officiating side not just in the nhl but you see it a lot in the nfl every weekend now that everything is just becoming more and more important so with with someone like carter hart at his age um even though he's one of the younger players in the nhl he's already above average with his visual skill. And, you know, when it comes to goalies, that convergence piece and being able to track the puck in, that's an area that he's really excelled in. Uh, and that just keeps improving it by, uh, by doing the training three times a week. And what's nice about it is you don't, we wanted to make sure that this was something that was, that was quick and easy for players to do. So just by going into the system, clicking train now, 10 to 15 minutes and your eyes are, are already getting stronger. And we also have the game day training to warm up the eyes four hours before you get on the ice. So similar to a dynamic warm up, where you want to make sure your body's ready to play. It's the same thing with the eyes. 
So for the kids out there who don't want to be Braden Holtby doing crazy eyes on the bench, they can quietly yeah. hide in the dressing room with their laptop and, and exactly. warm up those eyes. Yeah, exactly. no, I actually, I actually really like that that aspect was there and it was actually the simplest pieces of the puzzle um, in your software that people were able to work at to, to warm up before they go out on the ice. Um, and I'm fascinated by, by that connection between the training uh, and then the performance. And it sounds like you've got some good feedback from officials. Uh, I, I take it that maybe the penetration into the hockey market is a little bit newer. Um, can, can you talk maybe about some of the guys have been using this for a longer period of time, whether it's the baseball community or what? Um, how, do, how do we know that improving in your software is, is resulting in an improvement uh, in your performance in the game? Sure. And we've been working with MLB teams for 20 years, and a lot of the teams have been using it, not just for training, but uh, for scouting. And so over the years, we've had, we have, it's, it's unbelievable how many first round MLB picks over the years that we have in our system. And you kind of compare how they were at that age for their draft year and what they've become hitting wise. Uh, you know, you look at a guy like Aaron judge and when he initially took our baseline evaluation, his score is still one of the best that we've ever seen. And it was one of the reasons why the Yankees felt so comfortable drafting him because they knew that his ability to hit would continue at the next level. And when it comes to the training piece, there's, there've been a lot of different studies done on, on the visual training and, and how that helps you uh, at the plate or on the ice. And I think baseball is, it's always going to be an easier sport to put numbers to improvement because you've got batting average, you have strikeout rate, you have home run rate. Um, now you've got all these fancy um, statistics with exit velocity and sure. things like that. So yeah. it's, it's always going to be much easier in baseball to show, okay, this is helping me in this exact way. Now in hockey, you can talk about save percentage goals against average. You can look at individual statistics, but it's, it's always going to be much harder. But the feedback that we've been receiving from players, and I think we see it with the renewal rate and just the, the pros that, you know, especially when you get some of those veteran players that have been doing things the same way for a number of years, the fact that they're buying into it shows us that they're really seeing the improvement on the ice. And it might not be every single play that you see the improvement, but what we find from talking to the players is when they come off the ice, they can point out two or three specific instances where they know that they couldn't do that six weeks ago. And that's really where we see the, uh, the improvement and why we have so many people that are renewing it at a great rate. Fantastic. Um, in, in the beginning, you, you brought up about the portability of the system, how, how simple it is. And, and I think you alluded to some of the other devices out there. And we've had a chance to, to try a few of them, whether... Uh, you know, it's the DynaVision or whether it's the Cognizance mm -hmm. uh, 3D Neuro Tracker, where you pretty much have to have an entire wall in a room uh, to right. work with it. They're, they're obviously um, pretty appealing devices. Um, so, but the question came to mind as I was working with your software, how can we achieve the same thing in such a small package? What, what, what makes something that's relatively simple um, as sophisticated? Well, I, I think it's a good question. And I, I think honestly, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those pieces that when you think about technology as a whole, um, there are a lot of different ways to achieve the same thing. And I think what the medical staff and the scientists behind visual edge was able to find is that there's certain pieces of the, of the eyes that you don't really need to do anything too complicated 
to really improve it. It's similar to weightlifting just in general, where, you know, you can say, oh, you know, especially early on when weightlifting was still, was still new mm-hmm. and, you know, it's okay. How are, how are squats going to improve how I play on the ice? Now it's obvious. We, we all know that it, it allows you to skate faster. It makes you stronger in the corners. There, there are a lot of different ways that, that squats can help. And it's the same idea with, with this, where the different, the different ways to strengthen um, your visual acuity on the ice, there, there are different ways to do it. And we've just been able to find a, a package that allows it to be easier for players to use it and uh, very, very affordable, where our, our top package for six months is only $350. And the interface itself, fairly simple. I mean, a couple of, a couple of the, uh, the exercises, you're identifying um, position and shape and directions of arrows on the screen. Another one, I don't think we were clear on. There's, there's some actual 3D. Uh, you wear some regular 3D goggles and you, and you identify locations of objects in three-dimensional space. So um, interesting in that regard. But, but relatively straightforward stuff. The secret stuff, the secret sauce, so to speak, is probably in the way you're analyzing everybody's response to these, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, it's it's the uh, the analysis piece, and you know, a lot of it. I'll, I'll go back to weight training again. It's it's the same idea with with bicep curls. You start with twenty pound dumbbells, then the next week you're up to 25, 25 pound dumbbells. It's the same idea with this system, where every week we're making the tests just a little bit harder to push the uh, the eyes and, and to make that to be able to make that improvement. And then after six weeks, we give another evaluation to see if we need to change the, uh, the training plan around a bit, mm-hmm. or if, if the training plan is, is working the correct way, then you'll continue to see that improvement. But I, I think that's what really, um, really defines us is that everything is really customized to the individual because we are all different and it's the same idea with the eyes. So that's, that's really the piece that we focus on is to make sure that your individual training plan is different than, than your teammates or your opponents uh, based on what exactly it is you need. Fantastic. Well, no, no doubt the eyes are, are about the most important piece of the puzzle for a goaltender today, and, and training yeah. it is incredibly important. Uh, yeah. Is there anything else I've forgotten to ask that we, we need to talk about here? Well, just um, kind of what you mentioned there, I, I think it's, uh, it's really interesting. You, you get about 85% of the information that goes to your brain is coming in through the eyes. And I know I talk to a lot of parents and, and I ask them, okay, how many of you have, have sons or daughters that do some kind of uh, weightlifting and almost all their arm, all their hands go up. And then we ask about, you know, how many of them shoot pucks in their backyard or in the basement and a lot of their, their hands go up. And then you ask, well, how many are, are training with their eyes and maybe one. And a, a lot of the different NHL GMs that I've spoken to, when you start talking about it, they say, well, we're training everything else. Why aren't we training the eyes? Because they're so important on the ice. And so I think that's really the main piece that, that we've been finding when people are finally, when it clicks and they're like, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's really that part of it. So I, I, think, um, I think that's really been the piece that, that has started to, to, push our, to push Visual Edge more and, and to make more people interested in purchasing it. And I think working, whether it's with your eyes or we've also been talking a lot lately about mental training as well. Uh, I think that goes double for a goaltender, really, because absolutely, you know, a, a forward it can help to be two hundred and twenty pounds, but a goaltender, 
there's only so much you can do in the weight room to improve your performance as a goaltender. You need to have that, that mobility, that flexibility, that reactivity. Um, but investing a little extra time in your eyes and in your mind. Um, and, and I think it's worth pointing out here too, isn't it? That, that this isn't really just working on the hardware of your eyes. It's that eye brain interface and, and correct. Yeah. The neurological correct. connections as well. Yeah. And it's, it's been interesting because, uh, you know, there are times when we work with individual players that, we can actually identify if there's a major issue. Um, we can identify that. And a lot of times we, we have one goalie who, um, when he took his test, he plays in the American league and he took his baseline evaluation. And there were a couple numbers that, that were really low. And so we spoke with him and asked, are there times when you just lose the, the puck for a split second? And he kind of laughed and he said, yes. And we talked to, uh, talked to their GM who said, his problem is that he gives up slap shots from the goal line or from the uh, blue line when there aren't any screens or anything and there, they should be saves he should be making. And mm-hmm. part of that is just because he's not able to track the puck in. And what's great about the visual edge system is that we can fix that. So now here's a goalie who gives up goals that he shouldn't be giving up in the American league. And uh, now we're able to fix one of the main problems that he's been running into. And so it's um, those types of cases that we come across. Those are the, those are the ones we really like to, to uh, see because we want to see players be able to reach their true potential. And sometimes it's just the eyes that are holding them back. I think in a strange way, <clears throat> excuse me, I think in a strange way, that's a, a goalie parent's dream almost. Right, you know, can right. I find that one simple thing that we need to fix and suddenly everything is going to be better, but, but easily that could be happening for anyone. Couldn't yeah. It? It's, Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and worth pointing out that this isn't a replacement for regular vision checks and making sure that, that, you know, your eye health is, is where it needs Correct. to be. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time, Adam. Um, can you just remind everybody how they get in touch with you if they have questions, how they check out the software if they'd like to? Yes. Yeah, so for, for all the listeners, we're offering a, a special uh, deal. So if you go to visualedge.com slash IGM and uh, visual is spelled V-I-Z. U-A-L. So that's visualedge.com slash IGM. Uh, we're offering our two-month package. It's usually $175. We're offering it for $125. Oh, fantastic. So Thank if you. you go to that, if you go to that website, you'll be able to purchase it there. You can also go to our website and get uh get in contact with me directly if you have any questions or need more information. Um, but like I said, it's it's a great program that uh no matter what age you are, we have kids as young as seven years old using it. Uh, all the way up, obviously through uh, through NHL players. So it's it's a great system that uh, that will f- help you on the ice. Fantastic. We'll uh, we'll have all those links available uh, with the show notes on the website. And uh, Adam Micheletti, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us about Visual Edge today. All right. Thank you very much. That interview presented by The Hockey Shop, thehockeyshop.com, source for sports. Surrey, our gear segment, the web-based training platform, a visual performance assessment from visualedge.com, which I tried out a couple of times and I, I liked, I was, I was happy with what I did once. The hardest part for me was coordinating my, my fingers with the arrows and, and, and going through it, but uh, go on there, uh, sign up if you, if you're, if you're interested in this, it's, it does uh, require a connection to the internet, though. I can't believe I just said it that way. A connection to the internet. <laughs> Use dial-up. Dial-up. If, if you dial really up. have to. 
<laughs> yeah. I, so I haven't done it yet. I'll have to do it. I'm sure I'll score lowest cool. amongst our group, but uh, I still have the in goal record for uh, 10 by 10 concentration grids, although I can't remember what it was. So N- nobody's seen that happen <laughs> okay. in person, though, Kevin. I believe oh, I screen capped the result, Hutch, and sent it to you. Oh, hold on. Just, just what you said. Now I got to I find believe it. I have Shoot. the in goal record for the 10 by 10 concentration grid. It is. But, but I cannot remember. I'm what it was because that's because so, I'm, all, cause I'm so, It's not a memory grid. It's not a memory yeah. grid. <laughs> you just have to be grid, able to count to a concentration grid. There's a oh, big difference beautiful. between the two guys. I didn't claim. I didn't claim any memory capacity. But you give me. A, you give me ten by ten and two and a half minutes, and Bob's your uncle. Two and a half minutes. <laughs> now I'm trying. Now I'm trying to look it up to see if I got that. Two one. and a half minutes on Pete Fry's listing of. 10 by 10 grids. I think you would be number two just behind Carter Hart with those numbers. I'm, a, yeah. I'm telling you, I'm a concentration grid, grid genius. It's all those crossword puzzles I do with my kids. Did you... Um, Funny did enough, you, I can't stop a puck worth crap, but concentration grid, I'm all over it. How to work with the rabbit hole that you were working on. I wanted to loop back with you and just give you a chance, if you wanted, on the, uh, the ClearSight uh, information. And well, it's interesting. Just uh, Hutch had mentioned, and Bob is minus 3.2 on the cumulative in terms of goaltender plus minus contribution rating should point out a couple of, okay, what does that mean? Like it basically, it basically what that it's means. cumulative. So it basically means of all the, the quality of the chances he's faced, he average would be expected to give up 3.2 goals fewer than he has. He has given up 3.2 goals more than would be expected. Now this is to October 31st. He's been better since the turn of, uh, the month, they update their numbers on their... Pu- the publicly available numbers are updated monthly, but the numbers that Steve quoted in our interview are part of a new database where he's got access to it instantaneously. So he was talking about toughest environment. But when you look at save percentage compared to expected, Bob isn't even in the bottom five. So And, and Staylock's in there at minus 1.7%. So as much as Bob looks worse in the bottom five, like he has to barely be below expected save percentage... And that means that if he's barely below expected save percentage, that it really is cumulative. It's all about the volume he's seeing in Florida. And that's why he pops up on that bottom five list. And again, this is through the end of October. So, uh, you know, I would expect that these would change. And maybe we'll get Steve to give us an update just because we've talked talking about it for next week's podcast. And next week's podcast is going to include Mackenzie Skapsky. Which is uh, just just a sort of another step down this uh, this journey that we have of teaching, and and New York Rangers, uh, Adam yeah. Adam Micheletti, of course, the son of Joe Micheletti, who works with MSG, who works with Alaket at MSG, um, and a guy who's got a really fascinating backstory, and we'll get into that with him. Uh, got that interview in person this week. And we'll talk about uh, the career that McKenzie had, um, his work with Benny Allaire in New York, the lessons he learned, and how he's applying all of it uh, to to a new company, Assertion Goaltending, uh, along with Jeff Malcolm, who is a development coach, uh, goalie coach with the New York Rangers, and how everyone will be able to access some of that expertise moving forward as McKenzie decided to, you know, just the, the hip and some of the injuries just, just weren't worth it on a day-to-day basis. So time to try something new, and he's had this in the works, and I... In talking to him, I think he's he's got something there that, um, you know, is, is probably quite unique compared to what a lot of other people are doing. It'll be interesting to to see some of the feedback as we share that with our listeners next week. I'm excited about it. 
anything that offers a unique approach uh, to the world of goaltending and the art of teaching, I'm I'm fully on board. It, we may raise a an eyebrow at times uh, to certain teaching aids or teaching approaches, but I I love the fact that and commend anybody is willing to take that chance. Right, Hutch? Absolutely. I love things that think outside the box and new things for goaltending. And maybe we might even have one of our own coming up. Uh, December the 1st, we will be releasing the new edition of In Goal magazine. We haven't even come up with the right name for it. Maybe some people could help us. One of our writers. That's Paul Campbell, one one of our writers for many years in gold. In goal premium, in goal insiders, but whatever it is, we will be bringing a sort of premium subscription model of in goal magazine uh, to everybody. It will include teaching content. It will include Kevin's great new project, Pro Reads, where he has NHL goaltenders actually walk you through saves that they've made to tell you how they made it, what they read, the situation they saw in front of them. And it's absolutely fascinating uh, to hear the depth of, of, the way these guys are looking at things, um, really enjoying putting those together. There'll be some in the in the room gear segments where guys walk us through their setup and so on, uh, and then typical sort of uh, feature articles, teaching content. Um, it's just going to be a, a fabulous new way of presenting content and and an opportunity for us to bring a whole lot more to the goaltending community. And we've certainly had a number of pros uh, as we sit down with them. It's it's actually really makes me feel like dad that we've been around long enough that pros are telling Kevin that they grew up reading in goal magazine. Mackenzie Blackwood this week, New Jersey devils in town. And when he saw the new in goal magazine, Mike flashes, like he was all in. Cause he used to read our PDF. We used to have the PDF magazine, kind of a, a page turner magazine. And he said that was like, that was like his Bible. That was his go-to. And so think of it this way. If we're, I loved Hutch's description. We're basically going to take everything we did in that and we're going to bring it to you on a more consistent basis. The mm-hmm. reality of that PDF format and that magazine style format is it disappeared because we were doing it for free and there's a big cost to producing that type of content. So uh, as the world changes in terms of how we consume media, I think more and more people will accept the concept of a subscription product online. And that's the only way that we can consistently deliver that level of quality um, using you know, accessing guys in the room, spending the time to go to the rink, going on trips to visit guys like Roberto Luongo in Florida and be on the ice with them is to have a paid subscription. And after a couple of years of planning and putting it all together and gathering that content, I am excited as heck to debut it on December 1st. Well, just, if you can imagine, go ahead. Just needs a name. Right. You know, just a name. That's all we're missing. The only thing we're mi- missing is that thing that probably comes yeah. at the beginning. So we just skipped it and moved on. You, that you whole can, ramble I just gave, you can't just type yeah. that into one giant headline. and That's a very catchy phrase, yeah. You're never going to be a catchy phrase writer, Woody. Imagine it. See it. That's sort of what goes with our theme of this episode from Clearsight Analytics and VisualEdge.com. Our thanks to Source Sports Surrey, Hockey Shop, TheHockeyShop.com. And as always, to you, the listener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for stopping by and thanks for being here every week on In Goal Radio, the podcast.